The sermon we shall share together was written by Reverend Stephen Tahart from Baldivis uh, Free Reformed Church in Western Australia. And he's chosen a scripture reading, the um, second book of, or the second chapter of Galatians, from the verses 11 to 21, and then 1 Timothy 4. And his chosen text is 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if the righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. May now turn to your, in your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is on page 1363 of your Pew Bible. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables 
and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourselves entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And the text again, verse 7, actually it's 7b. The emphasis is on exercise yourself towards godliness. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you pray for your office bearers tonight, for the brothers who have been ordained this afternoon, for the elders and deacons who are already in office, and for your minister, please pray that they be godly. And don't just pray it without giving the matter much thought. Implore of the Lord that Holy Spirit will fill the hearts and lives of your leaders, that we might be men who are godly in all life. I'm asking you to do this because I'm concerned that we don't pray for the godliness of our office bearers enough. I fear that we do not put enough emphasis on the pressing need for the growth in the godly character of our leaders. On the one hand, that's understandable because it's right to eschew godliness in our leaders because we did not see godliness in them, they should not have been ordained in the first place. But on the other hand, godliness is not something to be taken for granted, nor something that you can ever stop striving for. The Apostle Paul did not take godliness for granted when, he came, when, it, when it came to Timothy. Even though he addressed Timothy in chapter 1, verse 2, As a son in faith, he implored him in chapter 4, verse 7, to exercise himself toward godliness. And in verse 12 of that chapter, he urged that he be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, and in purity. And in chapter 4, verse 16, take heed to yourselves and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Godliness in church leadership cannot be emphasized enough. 
Yes, we want our ministers to be good preachers and teachers. Yes, we want our elders to be good listeners and wise counselors. Yes, we want our deacons to show love, concern, and teach good financial management. And yes, elders and deacons, as office bearers, you also want to do all these things and do them well. You want the skills and you want to train yourselves in the skills needed to be a good office bearer. But above and beyond all of this is the need to be godly. And if Paul felt the need to urge Timothy, a man who had shown himself to be a mature Christian, a gifted pastor, an effective evangelist, and a respected church leader, if Paul felt the need to urge Timothy to be godly, so we and our leaders also must be urged to train ourselves for godliness. And so, I share with you the word of the Lord under the following theme. Train yourself for godliness. In the first place, we see the heart of godliness. In the second place, the practice of godliness. First, the heart of godliness. Brothers, office bearers, and those of you who are ordained this afternoon, the office of elder or deacon is a beautiful calling. It's an honor and a wonder of God's grace that he's willing to bless you with the privilege of serving his church in this way. You will rejoice and be filled with thanksgiving as you see people come to knowledge of the truth. Repent from sin and grow in faith and in love. You will make visits thinking that you went to support a brother or a sister or a family, but return with the feeling that you received far more encouragement from them than you could ever give. You will establish relationships, not just with those in your wards, but also with your fellow office bearers. Relationships that you will cherish and that will encourage you in the walk with the Lord. But there will also be great costs and sacrifice. You will see another side of church life. You'll be confronted with sin. You will grieve with those who turn their back on the Lord, who dishonor his name, and who suffer the consequence of their rejection of their sinful behavior. You'll feel great stress when there is disunity, when brothers fail to live together in communion. You'll find it hard to balance your marriage, your family life, your work, and your office of elder or deacon. And you'll feel that you're failing to do any of those things as well as you would like. Your body and your mind will be tired and will be pleading for rest on some of the nights when you're expected to go out again for a meeting or a pastoral visit. And so you'll be confronted, not just with the stresses of the ministry, but also with yourself, your own weaknesses, your own failings, your own fears, your own pride, your own sin. You see, brothers and sisters, office bearers are human beings. Office bearers are made of flesh and blood, 
fallen flesh and blood. They're not superhumans, not even super spiritual in the sense that they're not affected by the limitations, the weaknesses, or even the lusts of human flesh. Office bearers, that is ministers, elders, deacons, are in need of the same blood of Christ, the same saving grace, the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit as every last one of you. And that has to be our starting point. If we want to get to the heart of godliness, we could say godliness is living before God's great face. Godliness is placing God at the center of every activity and every endeavor. Godliness comes from a God-centered and gospel-centered life. To be godly is to be crucified with Christ so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. Godliness is living out of grace-filled position that we have in him. Well, Timothy, well, Timothy was ministering to the people of Ephesus. There were many false teachers who failed to begin with, the start, with this starting point, who did not seek their godliness in the grace of God through Christ. And for that reason, Timothy was called to be on guard against those who promoted that false doctrine and false forms of godliness. Apostle Paul began his letter in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3 and 4, by saying, As I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. And in chapter 1, verse 18 to 20, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, having suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And then in chapter 4, Paul goes back to these false teachers, and he describes some of the things that they are insisting on. Forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. These teachings were, Paul wrote, the work of deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And those who promoted these lies had their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That is, they had begun to believe their own lies, thinking that this was the way to be saved. This was the way to be godly. But it was not the way to be saved, and it was not the way to be godly. Nor could one be saved or grown in godliness through what verse 7 describes as profane and old wives' fables, the teachings of men as though they were the teachings of God. 
That's not to say that there was anything wrong in itself with abstaining from meat um, or certain other foods. The New Testament actually speaks positively of the practice of fasting. Like there was, likewise, there's nothing wrong in itself with remaining unmarried in devotion to God. Paul himself was single, and he called it a gift. And, these, and there's nothing wrong in itself with pummeling the body into submission. After all, Paul himself had written in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, that I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disquieted, disqualified. But what was wrong with these teachings was that they misrepresented the way of salvation, the way of godliness. They suggested that salvation was not to be found in Christ alone, by grace alone, but by keeping human rules and regulations. This then was the old heresies of work-based righteousness, of legalism, and that had come up so often before, a legalism that Paul had to fight against in Acts chapter 15 and described in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul wrote about the time when he had to oppose Peter and Barnabas and many of the Jews who were caving in to pressure from the circumcision party. The circumcision party were those Jews who insisted that the way to come to God was not by faith in Christ alone, but by keeping the law and by being a Jew. And the result of this hypocrisy, Paul wrote in Galatians 2 verse 13, was that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Legalism is a do-it-yourself religion, a religion that teaches you that the way to come to God and so the way to be godly is through setting aside the gospel, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, and working your own way into God's favor. But you can't do that. To add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ to teach or suggest that God will accept you in any way other than through Jesus Christ alone is heresy. And it's false teaching. And it's the doctrine of demons. And what that means when it comes to godliness is that you may not see godliness apart from the grace of God. You see, the heart of godliness is to know that I'm nothing in and of myself. It's to deeply to be aware of my sin, of my guilt and corruption. It's to be profoundly ashamed of my sin. It's to be broken before God. And then it is to rejoice more and more in the cross of Jesus Christ. Brother office bearers, you need that. Yes, you need to be good listeners and wise counselors. Yes, you need to show love and concern and able to teach good financial management. But above all these and all other things is that you need to live in and out of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
And that's also how you are to do your work. Do not set aside the grace of God, as Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 2, verse 21. Do not set aside the grace of God, but live and breathe that grace. You need to be broken before God before you can minister to the brokenness in others. You need to live out the grace of God yourself before you can minister in the grace to others. Do not forget that. And as the office bearers, it's tempting to rush about putting out fires. As an office bearer, it's tempting to take shortcuts, to think so long as the person's in church, so long as the marriage remains intact, so long as he's paying his contribution to the church, so long as he appears to be doing the right thing, that things are okay. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that these things are unimportant, nor am I saying that you should not focus on these fruits of faith, but do not neglect the heart of godliness. Do not shortcut. Do not set aside the grace of God. Brothers, as office bearers, you are ambassadors of the grace of God. Calling people to be reconciled to God in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Be drawn to God yourselves. Be drawn to his love, his grace, his favor. Live out his grace and his favor yourself. And then call others to see the greatness and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And then to respond to his grace in love and in worship. Come to our second point, the practice of godliness. Some Christians can get a little bit concerned with all this talk about grace. Worried that the result is that you become too soft in the law. And it's true that in some areas you will be less black and white with how you think about and speak about Christian life. But if a focus on grace leads you to be soft in godliness and holy living, then you've misunderstood what grace is all about. For the grace of God is the greatest motivator for you to be godly in all of life. You see, as Galatians 2 teaches us, when you're crucified with Christ, buried with him, then you're also raised with him so that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You belong to him body and soul. You share in his treasures and his gifts. And then you also take on his person, his personality. Then you want to be like him, righteous and holy, and so you will also want to live for him every day in every way. Living in the grace of God will make you long for holiness, long to be godly. And this longing then will also drive you to train for godliness. Or as it says in the New King James Version, uh, 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, to exercise yourself towards godliness. You see, Growth in godliness doesn't just happen. It's not simply a matter of praying that the Lord make you more godly and then going on life as though nothing had happened. 
But as you pray for godliness, you're also praying that the Holy Spirit will help you to work at being godly more and more. The word exercise in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 refers to physical exertion, bodily exercise. And it comes from the same Greek word as our word gymnasium. It's the word used to describe the physical training that athletes need to do in order to compete at sport. As such, it's rigorous, hard work. To exercise yourself toward godliness requires great and ongoing dedication and concentrated energy. In our text, Paul is not simply telling Timothy to pray to the Lord for godliness and that this would be the end of the matter. No. Timothy was called to strive to be godly, to train himself for godliness. He's to strive for godliness, and in the same way that a sportsman strives to excel at a sport and and to win the prize. And the rest of 1 Timothy 4 gives us some guidance in just how we are to train ourselves for the godliness that God requires of us. Verse 12 particularly calls Timothy to be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Personal godliness is to be seen as your words in which you say and how you say it. Although your love for God calls you to defend the truth of the gospel, sometimes even too strongly defend it, you will not be quarrelsome, but you will speak the truth in love with words seasoned with the grace of God. What you say will be saturated in prayer in which you will plead to the Holy Spirit to guide you in all your thoughts and words. And becoming more Christ-like will also have an impact on your conduct in all of life. Being clothed with Christ is not something that you can take on and off at will, but you are a child of God. Wherever you are, at home, at church, at work, on holidays, and so forth. The danger for us as office bearers, and I think for all of you, is that we have a bit of split personality. Where we put on a godly front at church, and in our uh, office capacity as minister, elder, deacon, but that this godliness godliness does not flow through to how we deal with our own family, to what, we, uh, to what we think or do among our friends in private. Fellow office bearers, you will not be able to call the congregation to be godly in their conduct if you're not growing in godliness yourselves. You cannot tell a person that sin is terrible if at the same time you allow sin to gain foothold in your own life if you do not seek to conduct yourself in godliness. And in addition to godly speech and godly conduct, you will also train yourself in godly love. You will grow in the love for the members of the church and the, church and the people in your wards. You will be passionate in your concern for those who are lost. And you will firmly but lovingly call them to return to God and to the grace that can only be found 
in Jesus Christ. And you will also train yourself in godly purity. Office, uh, office bearers, it's of critical importance that you be pure in every way, that your motives are pure, that your heart is sincere. And godly purity must also mean bodily purity. Be men of integrity. Practice godly discipline in what you think or dream about, what you look at, and what you say, and what you do. And so you are to train yourselves for godliness. But even as you train yourself, you'll be confronted once more with the weakness of your human flesh, of your inability to be truly godly. And this in turn must drive you to your knees in prayer, imploring the Lord once again for his grace and his Holy Spirit. And the Lord will give you his grace, and he will give you his Holy Spirit, comfort you, to convict you, and to train you. And the chief way that the Holy Spirit trains you to a life of increasing godliness is through his word. And so take God's word. Read it. Do not just read it for others, for the sake of your family or those whom you are visiting. Read it for yourselves. And then don't just read it, but meditate on it. May our lives be saturated, not just with the reading of God's word, but, with the might, but that we might seek to live it and, and live through it. Be nourished in the word, holding on to the true doctrine of grace. And as it says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourselves entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. From my personal experience and from what I read and observe, I believe that one of the greatest dangers that office bearers, that office bearers in the church face is that they stop exercising themselves towards godliness. One of the greatest dangers is to let the busyness of work, the pressures of life, the demands of ministry, block out the call to take heed to yourselves and your godliness. But you cannot and may not do that, for it's only through godliness that is grounded in the grace of God in Jesus Christ that you're able to fulfill your ministry. And therefore, brothers and sisters, pray that you might be godly. And pray earnestly. Pray that your leaders, your minister, and elders, and deacons of this church might be godly. But more than that, pray that we might train ourselves for godliness. For then, not only will we be blessed, but you will be blessed through us as we minister in the grace and godliness that is given to us by God through his Holy Spirit. Amen.